Hello and welcome to Accessible Theology. My name is Aaron and I'm here with Michael. And our goal is to make the study of God's word accessible to our listeners so that we and you would better love God, know truth, and live accordingly. Hello and welcome to another episode of Accessible Theology. Uh, glad that you are here listening with us to this episode. Uh, we are uh, about to discuss the book of Amos, and so we are doing a minor prophet major message. And as always, I want to start off with just a little bit of uh, background information before we get into our three normal questions. So like I said, we are discussing the book of Amos, uh, and Amos, his name uh, means Yahweh bears the burden. And so that's just something to keep in mind as you uh, read and as you listen along to, to what we will be discussing a little bit about Amos. He was a shepherd, which some people say he actually was a buyer and seller of sheep and not actually herding sheep, but neither here nor there, I suppose. Uh, but what is important, even we see in chapter 7, uh, verse 14, uh, it seems to be that he was a little well off. He, he seemed to, um, even though he was a shepherd, have uh, financial means. And so we will, we will see a lot of shepherd imagery coming up throughout the entire book of Amos. Uh, so again, just something to keep in mind as you read. Uh, the book of Amos was written... Uh, or was taking place uh, somewhere around 760 to 750 BC. And that's uh, something that we're, we're able to pinpoint pretty clearly because of uh, the names of the kings that we see in uh, the first verse of Amos. Uh, and so you can uh, be pretty sure that that's when it's taking place, 760 to 750 BC. And now the interesting thing about Amos is that uh, even though he was from the southern kingdom, the city, town, whatever, uh, called Tekoa in Judah, he's prophesying to the northern kingdom. He's prophesying to Israel. And so his message is not received very well, and it's possible that it's simply because the fact that he's not from there. Uh, but um, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that as we discuss more specifically the message of Amos. And as always, we want to frame our discussion by asking three simple questions. And so our first question has to do with the creedal connection. So as you've been listening, listening along, uh, we've been explaining the creedal statement of Israel, and, and we're trying to connect uh, that creedal statement with each of these minor prophets. And so that's what Michael's going to do. And he's going to uh, answer the specific question, how does the message of Amos align with Israel's creedal statement? So Michael, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, so the creedal statement again is from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where we're told that Yahweh is a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that he will by no means clear the guilty, though he offers forgiveness uh, to a thousand generations, he will punish to the third and fourth generation. So we see the lavish love of God. We also see that he is a just God and will 
punished. So we see the consistency of his character across the board in this revelation that's given to Moses. And as we've said before, that revelation that is given to Moses is foundational for the rest of the prophets, and they are constantly coming back to it again and again. In Amos, unlike Joel and Hosea, there is an, in, an explicit reference to that statement, yet we do see it clearly in play. In the opening three chapters, uh, Amos actually shows how well educated he is. He's actually using a very common and um, illustrative, illustrative, I'm sorry, form <laughs> of communication here. He uh, is. It's n- noted by many scholars that he is writing almost in a funeral dirge, um, which is foreboding for the yeah. people of Israel that he is writing in this connotation. He starts if you look at it as very poetic. He says in each section for three sins, he starts with Damascus and then he goes to Gaza and then he goes to Tyre. And there's this escalation where I'm sure if you're an Israelite, you're reading this like, oh, great, my yeah. enemies are judged. My enemies right, are right. judged. And then he gets to the last and he says, for three sins of Judah. Ooh. And that's where it sets in that God is consistent, not just to judge the nations, but even his own people mm-hmm. when they do not obey. Right. So we see the consistency of Yahweh's character and how it connects even with this creedal statement in this book of Amos. Uh, We're told specifically when he gets to the people of Judah that they have rejected the law of God. This is in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, that they have not kept his decrees. They've been led astray by false gods, so we see that they're following idols. They're breaking the Ten Commandments explicitly. Um, And he says for this, he will send fire on Judah, consume the fortresses of uh, Jerusalem. And, And note that Amos is saying this in a time of relative prosperity in Israel. This is still in a good time before the exile, so this would have come down hard on the Jews who would have thought that they're doing well and they're being promised this future judgment, which we do see come true in their exile eventually uh, with Amos. But we see this very strong word against them that comes up. And we see, I'm going to turn to chapter 9 and skip ahead then as well to see how he ties this in with both judgment and also a saving of a remnant people. Again, we, we've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating that not all Israel is truly Israel. We see this brought up uh, very clearly in Romans chapter 9. We're told that the people of Israel were a mixed community. They were not all regenerate. And God Though he judges the nation, there's always a remnant, a small number that he preserves as his people through this judgment. And we see this in Amos chapter 9. I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 7. We see, are not you are, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? So isn't that a strong word he's saying? Are you not the same to me as your enemies? So this would have been a hard word. He says, did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines uh, from and he says, and the Arameans from uh, Kerr. And then he, or I'm kid, I'm sorry, but my Bible's far away from me. And I'm trying to read it. Here. <laughs> uh, and he says this, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. Look, he calls the people of Israel the sinful kingdom. Yeah. And he says, I will destroy it from the face of the earth. But then he says this, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. And I will not, uh, and, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. So the presumptuous Israelites who are sinful will die. Notice he says not a pebble will reach the floor. He goes, God's judgment will not allow one person who is guilty to get through. 
is will be complete. And yet, those he will save are the remnant that have faith, that trust in the promises of Yahweh. So we see that connection that he will be faithful to his people who are truly his. Amen. And that is uh, just a good good thing to keep in mind as, as you read through the book of Amos. And it connects backwards, but it also uh, connects forward. And that's what we want to talk about in the canonical cohesion. Uh, so, Michael, where is the book of Amos uh, quoted or fulfilled in the New Testament? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Would you want to turn for us to Acts 15, uh, Aaron? And I'll read Amos 9. 11 here, and we'll see where it comes up uh, explicitly in the New Testament. It comes up in a few places, but this Mm -hmm. is the one we'll hunker down on, so to speak, because it connects so well with our idea we've mentioned before of God's promises, including the Gentiles. So in uh, Amos chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 11. We're told this, and this is speaking of Israel's restoration after the exile. He says this, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and I will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. And Aaron, if you want to read where that's picked up in Acts 15, then we can make this uh, connection. So I'll start in chapter um, 15 verse 15 and just read through 17 as well so in acts 15 15 it says and uh, with this the words of the prophet agree and i mean he's just kind of setting up uh he's going to point back to the prophet amos Uh, so he says with this the words of the prophet agree just as it is written after this i will return and i will rebuild the tent of david that has fallen i will rebuild its ruins and i will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So what we see in this context is James stands up amongst the brothers. Uh, This is when Peter is uh, with them and they're discussing how the Gentiles are going to fit in. And and there is a... (laughs) They're having a hard time in this early church make sense of all this because you're having... You're going from an an elect exclusive group of people, the Jews. Right. And now because of the scope of the gospel, we see in um, Acts 10 and 11, we see Peter's vision where God is saying that they're no longer unclean and by faith in Christ, they're to be included with God's chosen people throughout all of history. And the Jews are trying to come to grips with this and note that they go back to Amos here to show that this is actually not a new thing. The yeah, Jews, yeah. they're not struggling with a new concept that, again, we've said this before from the beginning. I mean, this goes back to Genesis 12. God tells Abraham that you'll be a blessing to the nations. Mm-hmm. And so from the very beginning of God's promise, it's expected that the world will be included. But this didn't happen right away. This happened in stages. It happened progressively as God reveals his will. We see more and more information. And we see that Amos is promising something that is now true, and that is that David's fallen shelter. So David is representative of God's dynasty, the covenant that God made with David, that he would have a son who would forever be on the throne. We'll get into this more explicitly when we talk about point three and how Christ fulfills this. But we see, though, that the repaired broken walls, their walls were broken down, they were taken into exile. And God is promising that 
they will be restored as a nation. Now, the most important thing isn't the physical walls. What it represents is that the people of Israel will be restored again. They will not be carried off into the nations, but the God will, that they will have a kingdom and that God will be over them and that they will live in unity and, and all the, the blessing that goes with not having walls that are destroyed. No nation does well whose walls are destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so what we see, though, is that these ruins that are restored and rebuilt includes, if you look at verse 12 of chapter 9 in Amos, when he says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Notice that Edom has a remnant. In other words, there are people from outside of Israel. They're going to be people in the nations that bear God's name. And James, when he's picking this up and, and quoting from the Septuagint, he, he says the Gentiles are in this, meaning that anyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be included in this restored uh, people of Israel. So therefore, what we know, what is maybe what we'd say whispered in the old and screamed in the new mm. is that anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ is part of the true Israel, part mm. of the true people of God. Not all Israel was truly Israel, meaning not everyone truly believed who were part of the old covenant, but all who believe genuinely in the Lord Jesus Christ mm -hmm. are the true people of God. This is mentioned in Amos and is picked up clearly in the New Testament in Acts 15 when the early church is, is teaching and understanding God's purposes as they come together in Christ, which leads us to our third question. What a segue there. I tell you what, that's uh, that's almost like that was planned or something. <laughs> Not by us, but uh, that's, yeah, that's just a good, a good, uh, a good way to shift to our third and final question where we ask, how does this book point us to Jesus? And, mm -hmm. and something that's interesting, I think, in Amos, which we'll also end up seeing in Obadiah, that that not not all of our questions, not everything that we're asking, the answer isn't always explicit, and it's not always positive. So when we ask our third question, the Christ Christological culmination, how does this put? How does this book point us to Jesus? Uh, we see that there's a negative answer, but then there's also a positive answer as well. So, so Michael, how, how does the book of Amos point us to Jesus? Yeah, well, let me kind of do a thematic study. So what Aaron's getting at is when, when something's not explicit, what we want to see is that there's actually themes all throughout the Bible. And we are told back in the earlier chapters that the lion has roared, who will not prophesy? It's mentioned uh, is what he says. And uh, so let me just read that in chapter three. We're told this, I'm going to start in verse uh, six, we're told when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble when disaster comes to a city has not the Lord caused it. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets, mm. the lion has roared who will not fear the sovereign Lord has spoken who can but prophesy. Mm. So Amos is saying, it's almost like he's saying Aslan is on the move, right? Mm. God has spoken I have to say this message, and it's not going to be pretty. He's, that's kind of what Amos is getting at, is that, because notice how he says in verse 6, disaster is coming and the Lord is going to cause it. And this, so to the Jewish people, they're, they're going to be surprised by this. It's not just their enemies that are going to do it. God is purposing to destroy them as a form of judgment because they have broken the covenant, is what he's saying. And he says, but notice, the Lord will not do this without revealing it first through his prophets to give his people a chance to repent. And they don't. Remember, we said they didn't respond well to Amos. And so we're told that the lion is roaring, the prophets are speaking, but the people will still reject it. And then notice this 
I mean, this is one of the more scary words that you can read in the, in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at uh, Amos 8.11. We're told this. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of Yahweh. Mm. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Well, that that is horrifying to know. Like we notice when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live on God's word. We live on his revelation. And we're being told here in Amos, God's no longer speaking. And we know that's true in the intertestamental period, meaning in between the Old and the New Testament. For those of you who aren't aware, there's about 400 years between the last writing of the book of the Old, in the Old Testament and the first, um, and when we see Christ and John the Baptist come onto the mm-hmm, scene. Mm-hmm. And in those 400 years, there's silence in terms of inspired speech. So Amos is predicting this, and he's predicting this in a time of prosperity. And he is saying, there is a famine coming, and it's not because of bread and yeah. water primarily, it's worse. I hope yeah. you don't hear that and go, oh, that's fine. At least we're, yeah. we're alive. At least we can eat. Yeah. <laughs> this is a terrifying word that they will not hear the words of God yeah. in, that, in that time. So let, why, why do we say this in conjunction with Christ? Well, I want to look then and consider the implications of the is, Israel's restoration. So if you look at Amos, um, if you look at Amos, where is it? 8.13, mm-hmm. he says, in that day. And that's right after he makes this promise that God will not speak. Well, when you go to Amos chapter 9 as well, we're told that disaster will happen again with Israel. But then we're told in Amos 9-11 about that restoration. We already looked at that with the canonical uh, cohesion question, right? That God will rebuild David's fallen shelter. But I want to show how this connects with Christ so that we get it. We see that David's fallen shelter we've talked about refers to ultimately to Jesus, who is David's greater son. Mm. For God to rebuild David's fallen shelter, as it's picked up in Acts 15, means that Jesus will bring in the Gentiles and the Jews and reunite Israel, who have been scattered abroad as the true people of God by faith in the Son of God. So we need to know that this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. For Israel to be brought back to its former glory and and being the people who are called out by God's name and a special people for his own possession, that Jesus will be the one to do that. Now, why did we start that by saying Amos 8.11, we're told God's words won't be spoken? Because in John 1, we're told that the divine word, the eternal word, has come. Mm-hmm. He has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. Look, if we notice... The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word that's translated David's fallen tent or shelter is the same word that's translated tabernacle in John 1.14. We know that for David's fallen shelter to be restored, it means that Jesus must be raised from the dead. How can we say that? Because in John 2, Jesus tells the Pharisees that if you destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. And John's very clear with us on this, so we don't miss the point. He's not referring to a physical um, building temple. He's referring to his body. He's referring to the fact that Jesus will bring about the new covenant by dying for sin and raising to life eternal so that his people can be with him forever. In the presence of God, we're told in Revelation chapter 22 that he is the temple that we will dwell with 
The presence of God is found ultimately in the person of Jesus, and being with him is to be in the presence of God. That's what's going on in John 1 when we're told that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to bring these things together to show this, the word of God that was silent for 400 years was picked up by Jesus then, mm. that he fulfills it by being the word that brings the message of the new covenant, the better covenant, the superior covenant. He's speaking better words than Abel. He's speaking better words than even Amos. He's bringing about mm. these precious promises that are he and saying he is the fulfillment. So we know then to connect Amos to Christ, that Jesus fulfills this, that he rebuilds what was broken down and he restores what was destroyed. And in him, we have life, and in him we can know God. Amen. And hopefully you can see, as we discuss uh, each of these minor prophets, why why we decided to uh, call the series Minor Prophet, Major Message. Mm -hmm. Because this the, this is not something, you know, that we can just neglect and, and cast to the side and, and not deal with as believers because it's pointing us to Jesus, uh, and that is... Um, that's crucial for us. Uh, you know, as, as we've discussed, John chapter one, um, it, it's not as if John chapter one is describing something that uh, was newly thought up by God. Um, John chapter one had been planned from the beginning and Amos is prophesying uh, in many ways of, of how exactly that is to take place. Mm -hmm. uh, so hopefully we can read our Old Testaments as Christians and can see uh, that there is definitely, uh, you know, creedal connection, stuff that connects back to the past, but then also canonical cohesion where it connects to uh, the New Testament as well. But ultimately uh, that we see that it is uh, Christologically culminated and it, mm -hmm. it finds its end, it finds its purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and I think Michael did a really good job of explaining that to us and, and drawing out um, and summarizing the message of the book of Amos and, and answering those three questions. Uh, do you have any final words that you would like to, to say? Well, what a joy it is to know that Christ is the true bread and mm -hmm. that uh, we are not in famine yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and I guess even even just before we we give our final exhortation, uh, we don't we we don't have to, you know, spiritually famine. We have the Word of God, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it was told to Augustine to take up and read. Well, maybe we should take up and eat the Word of God and and feast mm -hmm. on uh, what He has revealed and what He has given to us, uh, and find spiritual nourishment therein. So, as always, until next time, we want to charge you to love God, know truth, and live accordingly.